Gretchen was a special person. She... She... What's the point? I can't do this. Of course you can, We're doing just fine. That's because you were here. Tomorrow I'll be out there all alone, staring at my relatives. who will be ready to hoot and snicker at the first crack in my voice. They'll think I'm an idiot. Please, it's family. They know you're an idiot. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And Amy can just focus on me. Don't think about the millions of people out there listening. You can picture me naked if you want to. What is the trope we're talking about this week? We are talking about fear of public speaking. Fear of public speaking. This is a down-the-middle trope. Very sitcom-y. We're going to learn a lot of lessons. I think this is a good lineup because they all sort of conform to this very kind of sitcom-y messaging, but we definitely have a few zigs and zags here. So what's our what's our lineup? What are uh, our shows? In fact, a few bazingas and zags here. Yeah. <laughs> our lineup today is Golden Girls, Season 3, Episode 5, Nothing to Fear But Fear Itself, Blossom, Season 2, Episode 17, Losers Win. Herman's Head, Season 2, Episode 12, Feardom of Speech. And Big Bang Theory, Season 3, Episode 18, The Pants Alternative. Yeah. Now, when I ask you at the beginning of the show about your uh, experience with the trope in real life, you know, sometimes I'm kind of asking a little bit on behalf of the listener, you know, I kind of know, you know, maybe more information than I'm letting on. I don't think I've ever asked a question that I know the answer to more than I am right now. (laughs) Do you suffer from a fear of public speaking? Absolutely not. Bring on the attention. Now, I think the question is more interesting, though, in your case, because you have the personality type of somebody that kind of would generally need to, like, amp yourself up for this. But as you've mentioned on the podcast before, you were a competitive debater. Yes. In high school. So how did you, a very mild-mannered introvert, become the public speaking extraordinaire that you are today, Jay? Yeah, well, what I would say is I'm a little bit of a cliche as well, just a different kind of cliche. I think that there are a lot of uh, famous performers, Jim Henson, Robin Williams, etc., that were famously introverts. And they were more comfortable on stage or on camera or whatever than in everyday situations. And not that I am comparing myself to those legendary people, (laughs) only in the specific way. Yeah, as you mentioned, I did 
debate on a national level in high school. I did theater stuff. I've always been doing weird skits and videos. I have always had this thing of being sort of compelled to get up in front of people and do a thing that I have control over, whether it's delivering a speech that I can prepare or even something like debate where there's somebody actively trying to make you look dumb. There's still, there's a structure to it. There's an agenda. There's an understanding. And again, a way that you can prepare for it that I find much more comfortable than, say, a dinner with three or four people where you just have to sit down and, hey, what's the big deal? We're just all going to talk. No problem. We're just all going to hang out and talk and it'll be fun. And for me, that's a lot more intimidating. So in a sense, I have sort of the opposite of this, where as a generally nervous person, There absolutely have been times like delivering the best man speech at my brother's wedding or certain times at work, kind of like the characters in some of our episodes where I had to get up and do a big thing where those situations did weigh on me in the way that anything sort of out of the ordinary would weigh on me. But I also kind of thrive and even kind of seek out those situations because, again, It's for a certain personality type. It's like what we can't do, the impression that we can't make in our normal, like everyday lives. We want to compensate for that with performance. Yeah. In a, in a bigger setting, right? Where it's like, like you said, you have control over it. Exactly. So what I thought was interesting about all of our characters in all of our episodes was that it didn't stem from just sort of a natural shyness or a natural kind of like introversion. All of it stemmed from a crash and burn situation that they had in their past. So I definitely have had those. And I think the yips that come from the crash and burn situation are harder to get over than just kind of, you know, having a natural shyness. Have you ever had a crash and burn? I don't think so. Not any more than the average person. I'm sure I got in trouble in school and stuff. But what I was going to say was that this sort of childhood trauma that seems to be at the stem of all of these characters' phobias is a little bit of sitcom-y pop psychology that isn't necessarily borne out in real life. In real life, having those experiences at the end of the day tends to actually strengthen you a lot of the time. And that kind of gives you the sense of, "Ah, I've seen it all. I've screwed up. It's not a big deal. It's not always a traumatizing thing that stops you from ever taking the stage again. Yeah. And I think part of like what happens to three of our characters is that it happened when they were young and then they just never tried again. So the little seed of fear that was planted 20 some years ago has now grown and that's why it's so terrifying to you know to approach it again so let's get into the golden girls properly this is season three episode five nothing to fear but fear itself so uh yeah golden girls is pretty familiar ground at this point we've covered it twice although one of it was the bullshit empty nest backdoor pilot right which was really not them at all yep yeah but i I do see a pattern already established, which is we often begin with Sophia 
having some sort of project, right? I remember the last time it began with Sophia looking at her big book of like, so you want to be a magician? And she was like getting ready for the talent show. She was trying to come up with a talent. So right. throughout the episode, she kept doing different exactly. talents. She's always preparing for some sort of thing. They're at always, the senior center that she doesn't want to go live yeah, at. They're always kind of shoving her off to a B or C story. And so it's like she gets her own little comic strip scene. And in this case, it's she's entering a cooking contest. Right. Right. So Dorothy says something like, you finally perfected your non-rolling meatball. Right. Yes, like she's, but it wasn't. It was lasagna. Yeah. She's working on lasagna. I don't know. I just kind of noticed that, that in both of the episodes we've seen, Sophia is pretty ineffectual in the story. So they always kind of bookend it with a little project she has. She is there for the little funny moments to kind of weave in and out. So if we happen to have a really serious section, then Sophia can come in with her next attempt at, you know, veal parmesan or something, and we can have some funny little digs coming from her. Yeah, exactly. But the main story is going to be Rose. She's upset. She comes in crying because her aunt died, but she hated her aunt. The problem is that it's it's her tradition in her family that the oldest niece has to eulogize somebody when they die. That makes so much sense. And so and so she has to speak at the funeral. Right. This aunt that she has that lives in Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. but is going to be buried in Bermuda where she loved to vacation. So this, again, matches our Cold War Golden Girls episode. That was also a Rose-centric episode that is sort of, you know, catalyzed by her walking in all upset and sort of announcing something. By the way, another episode where she was going to have to go give a speech in front of many, 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 many people. And it's the next episode after this episode. And she was not scared at all. Her fear was beaten in one episode. Well, and how do you suppose they got to Russia? They on a plane. Right, which which we'll also address. Dorothy, a fear of flying. We got a little bonus one in this episode. Yes, tons of overlapping tropes here. But yeah, it all begins with Rose being upset. Dorothy's suggestion, which I noted because this is a definite subtrope that is going to recur, imagine everybody naked. That's the thing to do. That's what, uh, that is common wisdom. Now, as we established, you're not the personality type that has to overcome stage fright to begin with. But is this real? Does anybody do this? Does anybody find any solace when they're nervous for something to imagine that people are naked? I can't understand how that would work, right? If you are nervous about presenting or being in front of people, you are very likely like in your own mind, right? So I think the idea is that it's trying to get that inner monologue to be something silly instead of something fearful. And then that should help, right? Like, I kind of understand that. Like, I'm terrified of auditioning. I hate auditioning. I shake. I'm nervous. It's the worst. I hate it. And so... I think, you know, that kind of inner monologue of, oh, maybe I can like picture them naked, maybe that, but that the amount of brain energy and that doesn't even work. And how is it laughing? And it's like, do you do it before you start talking? I don't understand it. Yeah, I've I've always heard that as one of those things. Like, I don't know if you would call it an urban legend, but something that's like seems to be a thing in movies and TV. Sage wisdom. 
So that advice gets thrown out there and they sort of turn it around on her because Blanche and Rose just start, I guess, imagining Dorothy naked right then and there and they start laughing. They start laughing at her and then Dorothy gets all grouchy as she walks out of the room and then they're laughing even harder because, you know, they are imagining her butt and everybody, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. So we get, like we alluded to, the first of many origin stories, right? This is a big overlapping subtrope of all of these fear of public speaking things as there was some traumatic childhood event. In this case, it was Rose's high school graduation in her, what is it, Olaf? Is that what she calls Mount Olaf. Mm-hmm. Mount Olaf. So in her homeland, they choose the valedictorian by drawing straws. There was only like 19 people in her graduating class. And, and the top four get to draw straws. Yeah. And it, there, it wasn't, you know, for a Rose story, it wasn't that outlandish, right? She choked. She was permanently traumatized. That's the deal. That's the deal. And so ever since then, she has not wanted to speak in public. And now she can't bear it. She's just not going to go to the funeral. Right. But so this is where, like you said, we get our fun bonus overlapping tropes. Each of the Golden Girls except Sophia, I guess, have their own personal phobia. So Dorothy's next suggestion after the naked thing is she says, try therapy. That's what I did to get over my fear of flying. That's right. And then Blanche chimes in and says, oh, and I have this recurring dream. She says, I'm trapped in an enclosed space. And she used this phrase more than once. And I just have to pause on this for a second, because if you have a dream... Who would use the phrase enclosed space when describing their own dream? Like, wouldn't it be more specific? Wouldn't you say I was trapped in an elevator? I was trapped in a closet. It just reeks to me of one of those things of the sitcom writers jotting it down and then like breaking for lunch and going, ah, well, we'll, you know, fill in something more specific later and then just never bothering to do it. See, I thought they were teeing up the reveal that happens on the plane, which is what I didn't tell you was that the enclosed space was a plane and that the plane crashed. Okay, fair enough. But what she does say is that she's trapped in the enclosed space with Men who are all bald, right? Which, as a bald man, I obviously take issue with this. And I don't even get it. Like, is it just supposed to be peculiar? Or is the idea that she's so horny, but she's surrounded by bald men and she doesn't want to sleep with them? She doesn't have any prospects in this so space. And it's she like is water, trapped. water everywhere, but not a trap to drink. There you kind go. Of thing. Exactly. I find that surprising. And again, maybe I'm just taking it too personally, but I feel like for all of the sort of of retirement age suitors that she's had over the years. Always have hair or, you know, bought hair. Yeah, okay. I, I was going to say, I would have to imagine you threw in a Telly Savalas type here and there, you know. Who knows? But uh, but yeah, so she's she's haunted by a recurring dream of bald men. And she she says that she eventually got over it by like denying it, basically. Like she just had this sort of mind over matter approach. So she doesn't, really have much of a suggestion but the point is that 
you know, Rose is going to to conquer her fears at, at this funeral and the other two girls are going along to support her and they each have their own phobia that they claim to have vanquished. That's right. Until we get on the plane. Yeah. Uh, well, and also Dorothy tries to lie her way out because so she says she's all good. But then Sophia, again, we get one of these fun little moments. Sophia comes in and is like, well, you know, planes to Bahamas are not big jet airliners like that one you took to Arizona. They're tiny and rickety, and there's always storms that you can't predict in the Atlantic. And so you never know. You're That's going to be an, a tiny little rickety plane. And Dorothy's like, don't make me go, Mom. Yeah, exactly. Dorothy basically decides, like, she freaks out. And she's, she's got to find like, a way to get out of I'm it. I'm not going to go. I also just wanted to mention there's a fun little scene between Dorothy and Blanche when Rose is off, she's gone to sleep or something. And they're talking about, oh, gee, I would hate to have to give a eulogy. And they start talking about what would you say if I died first and you had to eulogize me and vice versa. And Blanche's shoulder pads in this scene are so big that you can <laughs> see inside the collar of her shirt because her shirt is standing up off of her chest and shoulders so much from the shoulder pads. That was really what I was paying attention to during this scene. But yeah, they have, it's a fun little moment for them to do what they do around the kitchen table, which is say something nice and then get in some zingers. Yeah, exactly. Dorothy more or less plays it straight and she says, oh, you know, I would say that she was the best friend I ever had. You know, Blanche pushes her for like, what about my looks? What about my looks? Uh, Whatever. But then when Blanche does it, it's all of these great passive aggressive digs. She goes, oh, well, I would say... I always felt safe when she was in the house, you know, like... Yeah, because she's so big and strong. Yeah, the best thing about Dorothy is she's like a deterrent for for burglars. (laughs) And she says, I looked up to her like she was an older sister. That's right. And then Dorothy is like, oh, Blanche, how nice. Oh, and I forgot to mention as she's walking out of the room, I would also say in your eulogy that you were fat. Yeah. So, yeah, it all kind of devolves into insults. So, yeah, the next day, Dorothy is trying to weasel out of the flight. She says, I can't go because my mom is sick. Uh, you know, she, yeah, she went to the, she went to the food contest thing, but she has to come back because she, she ate, ate a, a bad, bad cannoli. cannoli. <laughs> yeah. But the jig is up. Sophia comes in and she's fine. And, you know, it all kind of comes out in the open that, that Dorothy's afraid to go. And she's like, you know, they're like, what kind of example are you setting for Rose? And so, yeah, we're all going to conquer our fears. We're all going to take this flight together. Yes. And so then we go to the plane and um, uh, just like in our fear of flying episode, we get a lovely, uh, very roomy seats that they're sitting in. This was a better plane set, I thought, than all the ones that we were sort of analyzing on our fear of flying episode. I feel like this one looked more like a plane. Yeah, but still just like the one little tiny section at the very back of the plane. You know, it's like, you know, four or five rows and then the flight attendant is standing in the back. That flight attendant, by the way, that is a character actress that I have seen in a million things. She, When she's doing her little spiel at the beginning, she says, in the unlikely event of a mishap during our flight. Right. I've been on a lot of flights. I've never heard the word mishap. No, they usually <laughs> say in the unlikely event of a water a landing. Water landing. They're more specific, but because they're sort of dumbing down the spiel for TV and they're just making it more, you know, they're making it more likely to cause a freak out, which of course it does. Right. Well, 
Well, and then they get all the fun things of like, well, what could a mishap be? Oh, a mishap could be something like this, Dorothy. I know what a mishap is. Yes. Yeah. And then this is around the time that Blanche is taking a look around the plane and noticing that all of the men are bald. And that is yes. a fun moment. Because <laughs> well, so a bunch of these guys had like Bermuda hats on, ball caps, and then they, you know, they do kind of a close up of the women just sort of sitting there yeah. and having, you know, a little bit of a freak out. Dorothy's trying to hold on to Blanche and be nervous. And then all when they do a zoom out the next time and the uh, flight attendant starts talking again, Blanche turns around and all of the men have taken their hats off. Yeah. So she just sees a sea of bald heads behind her yeah it's it is literally her worst nightmare and so yeah they're all just kind of like all right we're gonna grin and bear it and we have kind of an act break it it returns to the this this fun sort of tracking shot where the camera like pans along from one golden girl to the next and they're all sitting there in silence and when rose says something dorothy goes i thought we agreed no talking it shakes the plane <laughs> right, because now they're all petrified because, you know, Rose doesn't still doesn't want to go. Dorothy's terrified of flying. And Blanche has now told them all that her dream is coming true and that the next thing that happens is that the plane crashes. They have found a bolt, a big bolt on the floor. And the flight attendant is like, oh, if you anybody found a bolt, it belongs on the beverage cart. Yeah, the yeah. beverage cart. That's right. right. That's where it belongs. So they're all just like kind this of panicking. Like the Twilight Zone episode with the gremlin on the wing, but instead of a gremlin on the wing tearing out the nuts and bolts, it's a little old lady in the middle of the aisle. <laughs> like, I need that bolt back. Oh, and then the pilot comes on and announces that they're ha about to run into a tropical storm. And so they're not going to keep going to the Bahamas. They have to turn around and go back to Miami. And Blanche is ecstatic because she's like this didn't happen in my dream my dream's been broken it's not the same thing we're turning around we're going to be fine girls it's going to be great yeah and dorothy is happy too but rose has been denied her catharsis and this is something i really relate to just that feeling when the thing that you were nervous about and you're sort of on that collision course where i'm gonna have to confront it whether i want to or not and then you get the pass and that weird feeling of like oh good i guess like i'm relieved now that i don't have to do the thing but then you you kind of realize it, it's that cognitive dissonance of knowing like oh but if i had forced myself to confront it then i would be feeling this amazing unfettered relief instead right. of this kind of crappy relief of having to back down so they point her in the direction of the flight attendants uh pa little speaker thing and say we'll give your eulogy now yeah and she does yeah and so she does similar to the thing we're gonna see with herman and some of these other characters she kind of gets up and like like you see her sort of get into her groove, you know, she kind of says a few sentences, people start to chuckle and she starts to feel comfortable. And it's like you sort of see right before your eyes, the anxiety and the phobia sort of dissipate. Yep. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, I, I mentioned already how skeptical about when you do a trope like this, are you trampling on some of the continuity of, of the characters with Rose in particular? Do you think that a fear of public speaking is consistent with her character? If she's meant to be the sort of guileless, you know, uh, simpleton is maybe a little harsh, but, you know, she's daffy. We talked about how it's 
a variation, a difference, but a variation on her Mary Tyler Moore character, who was an on-air personality herself, would somebody with this sort of fun, daffy, you know, personality who doesn't seem particularly anxious in general... Is this a little consistent to sort of slap this fear onto her? You know, I think she's really the only one of the four that it works for, right? Because you've got Blanche, who is very much presentational. You know, she's been presented in a debutante ball. And yeah, it's not going to be Blanche. It doesn't fit her personality. You have Dorothy, who is a teacher, so doesn't have a fear of public speaking because that was her whole yeah. career. And then you have Sophia, who suffers no fools at any time, anywhere. She's not afraid of anything. So there's the only yeah. one that's left is Blanche, or, yeah, is Rose. And I think it kind of does work. You know, she loves to tell stories, but she tells them to her friends. And it doesn't seem to me that her fear stems from what other people will think of her. It's just her fear is legitimately just stemming from the fact that she froze that one time and she's never not known what to say because she doesn't right. have that problem in person normally. Yeah, which is part of why I feel like the whole childhood trauma pop psychology thing is 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 what makes these episodes not the most like what makes them less true to life um but yeah i i kind of agree it's just something that crossed my mind i thought it was funny when the flight attendant finally takes the intercom thing away from her she goes sit down this isn't the copacabana (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna get lots of timely references throughout these shows and so yeah you know problem solved everybody's confronted their fears and so the episode wraps up with Sophia's cooking contest story. And again, just like all these things, I love it for the classic sitcom writing of the B or C story takes place entirely off camera. Right. This is just going to be a fun little thing that this eccentric character gets to describe. Yes. So the big competition, her her number one rival uh, in the cooking contest is 103 years old, and she drops dead from the anxiety of it. And um, even though they both were up for first prize, Sophia takes it home all on her own because the other competitor died. And then the little button on the episode is, oh, and her funeral is next Saturday. Rose, guess who I've put in to do her eulogy? Yeah, they love to end on that little, just like last time with the uh, call from Ronald Reagan. They just like to kind of bring it full circle. So look, tracking the trope, it is right there in plain sight, right? We're going to have heavy overlap. A character walks into the room. Oh no, I have to give a speech. Let me tell you about the time when I was a kid and I messed everything up and I've been petrified of that ever since. And throughout the show, they'll confront it, right? That's right. Let's see if the pattern continues with Blossom. Season 2, Episode 17, Losers Win. Yeah, we've covered Blossom before in a subsequent episode where she had definitely conquered her fear of public speaking because she was running for class president. So we've talked about our history with this show. We both watched it back in the day. This was, you know, this was one that I think everyone kind of liked. I don't know if it was either of our favorite shows, but I remembered all of the, you know, musician cameos and the funny daydreams and stuff. It's the the sort of spiritual follow-up to Family Ties, right? Because that one was about the the family where the parents were hippies and then the kids were Reaganite, or one of the kids anyway, was like a Reaganite conservative. 
now it's the early 90s, the dad's a hippie, and the kid is just kind of like a hippie's kid. Well, and that's that's what's so interesting to me is that like parents on television for a long time were like old hippies. Mm-hmm. And and it just it boggles the mind because there's no way that the dad in this and the mom and dad in Family Ties were like contemporaries. Well, that's an interesting point, but I think it's one of those things that moment in culture was a big deal if you were 12 or if you were 24. Say. Yeah, no, that I guess that that makes sense. And so it, they they were 10 years apart or so because these shows are 10 years apart right. or so. So the they same would still way- have that kind of feeling. It it always is like, man, that it just seems like such a wide range of people are considered in this boomer generation and have been so impacted by the hippie generation. And it just, it, it just speaks to like the impact of that on the culture, yeah. even though it's not necessarily accurate of the people that were part of it. This guy that we're talking about, the dad in Blossom, one thing I observed, he is excellent casting for Joey Lawrence's dad. Those two they look, look so much alike. Exactly they have the, the same haircut. Yeah. So before we get into the proper story of this, this one also begins with the B story first. Somewhat problematic. I want to get your take on this. Uh, so Blossom has two older brothers. The oldest is a recovered drug addict who works as an ambulance driver. Yeah, he's an EMT. Right. And his whole thing throughout the episode is regaling Joey and then other people with the experience that, as he explains, I was at the best place a man can possibly be, a nude centerfold shoot, right? That's right. He was called in because one of these nude centerfolds was choking. On a chicken wing. Yeah. And so throughout the episode, we get this retelling of the story as they look. You know, we we had this shot all the time in the 80s and 90s in the movies of somebody looking at the unfolded porn magazine. So you don't get to see what they're looking at. You just see like the seven folded pages all like fall out unfurled the and right. the and the reaction of the actors exactly. going like, whoa. Yes. So we get over and over again, Joey looking at this centerfold while Tony, the older brother, explains like first I did mouth to mouth. The Heimlich. Right. Then I did mouth to mouth. And then a, what did he call it? A, a an heart, exterior heart massage. Yes. In other words, he got to feel her boobs. <laughs> now, look, in all reality, if this is your job, you're going to come back with all kinds of crazy stories. Absolutely. And you were definitely going to tell your brother that I had to perform CPR and the Heimlich and the breast massage and whatever on this lady. <laughs> so I don't want to be so stuffy to be like, ew, he should not be doing that. It's not proper. But... This definitely felt a little skeevy, right? Well, so I think here's the issue. It was funny once, but they did it three times. They thought it was funny enough to do it as like the opener or the closer of each act. And that it just got old because it wasn't another joke. Yeah, Like it was the same joke each time. 
the first time Joey passed out because naked ladies, the second time, I think he just told the story, right? And then the third time Joey passed out again because of naked ladies. So it was like, it just was, it was like, and each time the centerfold thing got unfolded. So it wasn't a new joke. And that's why it got boring. Yeah. And the other thing that was very silly was in this first scene, you know, when Joey doesn't believe Tony that any of this happened, he says, well, here's my proof. Take a look at this magazine. He shows them the new edition of the magazine. He says, this isn't on the stands yet. You haven't seen this in the stores. He says, there's only two copies of this. This model that you're looking at right now, she's got one and I've got the other. Now, I do not work in the world of publishing, but I'm pretty sure (laughs) that the way it works is not that you print out two manuscripts, right? Like two proof (laughs) copies. You give one to the centerfold model and then you give the other one to the centerfold model and say, give this to to the person of your choosing. (laughs) Nobody else needs to see this. Nobody else needs it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you're correct on your assumption there about the publishing industry. But again, it made for a funny joke once and the way that they wrapped it up at the end with having, you know, this is Miss January, Miss February, like that was kind of funny too. But that was because it was different. So at the end, they all come to get CPR training from Anthony because he did such a good job on Miss June that they all want to learn CPR from him. Yeah, and that scene was funny, but it was the fact that he addresses them as their months. Yes. That was a little, he's like, uh, August, why don't you come over here? Oh, September, you're doing a good job with your palpitations. Yes, that's like, right. right no uh, no names. real names, just months. Right. So that's their story. Uh, there's also a funny C story with the dad. He is a session musician. That's his fun sort of hippie dad sitcom parent job. And so his sort of... Cool dad is more his thing. Right. And so his sort of assignment for the week is he's playing on a Paula Abdul album. And again, Blossom, very hip show. We talk about this with Family Matters. There were some shows in the 90s that are like, every episode, we need to have a mention of a popular music act. We need to refer to TV shows and movies, either ones that we like or ones that we're going to diss. We need to really tap into that. Like, we need to have a stance on pop culture. Yeah, well, they, like, a big part of the show was that it was cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, the dad is going to be in the Paula Abdul music video, but he has to learn to dance because again, (laughs) I also have never worked in the music video field, but I'm pretty sure you don't say sight unseen. Hey, you session musicians, let's have you be dancers in the music video. Also just figure it out. Just learn how to dance. Be here next Thursday when we shoot the video. Right. No. In fact, what they would do is they would have dancers pretending to play instruments and get up and do the actual dances, which is what I thought was going to like come out of this at the end after he kept falling and, you know, whatever. I thought we were going to get a little wrap-up of that story of like, oh no, I got it wrong. There are dancers playing me. I just had to go in and record. That's what I thought too. It's like, they are they going to at least have a shred of realism and say that he was mistaken in thinking he would have to dance? Right. The other fun, uh, the sort of one-two punch we get of timely references is while he's explaining that he's going to be in the music video, he says, I'll get more exposure than Pee Wee Herman. 
Mormon. Right? He says that, and then we also get the um, another reference. Last time we watched Blossom, we got a reference to George Bush vomiting on the premier or the president of China, and they say it again this yeah, time. Yeah, the emperor of Japan. Yes. They say, it couldn't have gone worse if I had puked on the emperor of Japan. Exactly. So yeah, lots of straight from the headlines stuff. If you're too young to remember what the Pee Wee Herman thing is all about, listen to our Paul Rubin's uh, guest stars episode. But yeah, Blossom, her issue is she got kicked out of the drama club because she froze up during the Hamlet soliloquy. Right. right? It was, it's like at the beginning of the semester and they've signed up for new electives and uh-huh. she signed up for a drama class slash drama club and you have to audition to get in. And so she was like, well, I prepared the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet and I got as far as to be or not And I forgot the second to be. Yeah. Similar thing, you know, uh, I'm afraid to speak in front of more than a few people. This one's a little easier to swallow because she's younger, so it makes sense that this hasn't necessarily come up yet. I have some issues with her examples of how this is going to limit her in life. She says... I can't be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. I definitely can't be an Indian chief. I guess I'll be a mime or a lighthouse keeper, right? Again, a very 1992 sentence. I feel (laughs) like, you know... Indian chief, I, is that just because that's a leader of some kind? Yeah, so I think that, so, yeah. That kind of seemed to come out of left field. But she also mentioned she can't be a teacher. Yeah, um, and... Mimes, I feel like, was another thing we loved to pile on in the 90s. What was that movie where they beat up mimes? Shakes the Clown? I think there's more than one. (laughs) I feel like the 90s was big on like, hey, what about mimes, everybody? Aren't they dumb? Aren't they horrible? Don't they come from French culture? We hate the French. Let's beat them up. Yeah. So uh, she's, she's resigned herself to be a mime or a lighthouse keeper, and we get... A fantasy here, a sort of surreal fantasy daydream, very similar to our Saved by the Bell type fantasy daydreams, but without the pink fuzzy border that they put on those. So her big thing is that she's never going to be able to advocate for all of the causes that she cares about. So in her daydream sort of fantasy, she is standing up at the UN and she is giving this amazing speech and they're all cheering for her. And that's what makes her agree with six that she will sign up for the debate club because if nothing else, she'll at least get to practice so that maybe one day she can speak to the UN and all the leaders of the world will unite around her message. That's right. So this is not a anxiety daydream. This is actually a like strengthen my resolve daydream. And yes, it's been explained that since she can't do drama debate, is the only alternative or the only way to get whatever credit or whatever contrivance it is. So yeah, she she resolves to join the debate team. Throughout all of this, we're getting little quickie scenes of the dad practicing the dance moves. And as a Paula Abdul fan, I recognized some of the moves from Cold Hearted. <laughs> the way he kind of like, he, he does that thing where he puts his forearm in front of his face and kind of musses up his hair. And he's almost doing that like John Cena, you can't see me type thing like just just yeah kind of popping and locking with the best of them and he does the little kick move that you always try to do and it's hilarious (laughs) yeah so yeah the next day at debate club blossom takes the podium 
It's just a total debacle, right? right? She goes, I'd like to talk about... And she can't even finish the word. She's trying to say world peace. And every time she tries to say the word world, she goes, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And it turns into charades. They start doing a funny thing where, you know, the teacher's like, okay, sounds like, sounds like fleas. Sounds, you know. Sounds like knees because she's pointing at her knees. Yeah. And it just, again... The election episode happens later, so it it all adds up. But just the sight of her standing at that podium just immediately brought back to mind not only that election episode, but the Webster episode. Right, you know, where we've she seen, was also running for class president. Yeah, and even the various Jeopardy episodes we watched. The sight <laughs> of Mayim Bialik behind a podium is just this very familiar thing. But uh, yeah, we get the reference to Bush throwing up here. And uh, and yeah, you know, it, it cuts to them going back home. It's the, you know, I'm going right to my room. The whole thing was a, the whole thing was a debacle. And the dad is the one that suggests to her again, the picturing everybody naked. And okay. she basically laughs at him and is like, that's not going to work. So when we get to her room, yeah. right, she's sitting in her, um, she's got like a bay window. She's got like yeah, a window like seat a in her nook. room and she's playing taps yes. on the trumpet. And her dad comes in and he's like, oh, what's going on? Why are you in the dark? And she's like, it just is matching how I feel right now. I'm playing this song to make me feel better. That <laughs> like is the also, That was a major joke in the 80s and 90s that I feel like has gone away. I feel like... The playing of taps? Yeah, they do that on Saved by the Bell a lot. They'll just do it with their mouths. They'll go burp, burp, burp. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong... Kids these days don't know what the hell that is, right? Like, I feel like that was an old person's joke even when we were young. No, I I don't know. I feel like they do. I wonder if it stopped because we went as a country back to war. Yeah, or just the gradual lessening of military stuff in everyday pop culture. No, that's also true. Um, A little bit of both, for sure. Yeah, but I don't know. But, But so she does that. And then, yeah, they have their sort of daddy-daughter talk. And he tells her, like, just like with the Golden Girls and everybody else, you got to face your fears. You got to face your fears. And she she talks him down. Like, she has an answer for every good dad, get back on the horse kind of piece of advice he gives. And he finally just says, you know what? You're right. And goes to leave. And she's like, reverse psychology isn't going to work. And he's like, you're right. And she's like, mm. but she does go back to the debate club. Right. right because reverse psychology did work. <laughs> yeah. She didn't like the fact that her dad uh, like was giving up on her. Yeah. And that's what spurred her on to try again. Like, wait a minute. I can be down on myself. But if my dad doesn't even believe me, this is awful. No, no, no. I can do this. Yeah. So you mentioned before that I did debate in high school. And so I'm sure there are all kinds of different speech and debate activities. I did this thing called policy debate, which was this very sort of weird, intense activity. And we would travel all over the place and we had to talk really fast and do all this research in periodicals and and journals and stuff. And it was one topic over the entire year that you started researching the previous summer and you got more and more into it. And so when, when I would have to explain this to people and I would have to explain what it isn't, (laughs) What I would say is like, 
just definitely sort of let go of your image of like an after school club where everybody gets together and talks about whether cats are better than dogs. Right. Right. The, the way that Debate Club is presented in Blossom is exactly the image that I tried to dispel people of, of what high school debate was really like. Or your high school Right. Debate. So maybe right. there are debate clubs like this, yes. but this was not at all what I did. It is literally like, okay, you make the case for cats, you make the case for dogs, and it's just so silly. Well, there's those, uh, it's the Oxford-style debate. That's okay. what you didn't do. Like mm-hmm. the um, that podcast or the show that's on NPR that I tried to get you to listen to for years, Intelligence Squared, that's the style of debate. It's Oxford-style debate, but that's not at all what you did. Exactly. But Blossom is doing the cats and dogs thing, and it is funny You know, she gets past her phobia and starts to hold her own in the debate. She's defending cats and her opponent, Chad. Yeah. Chad is saying, you know, the stuff that people say, oh, dogs are more friendly and supportive and they greet you when you come home and stuff. And he has this recurring thing where he says like, and cats are in league with Satan. And when she challenges him on all of his various points and he kind of rebuts her various things and he goes, and I suppose you deny that cats are mascots in the Legion of the Devil. And I thought that was pretty good. And she was like, are you kidding me? Dogs eat their own vomit. How can you even be on that side? And she did not win the debate because she said vomit and that's gross. Yeah, which is also a subtrope, I think. Not of these episodes per se, but the idea of like, Somebody has to confront their fear in some sort of competitive way. And then at the end, it's like, well, did you win? Well, no, I got disqualified because of blah, 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 crazy thing I did. But I got over my fear, you know. Right. I'm not going to go on to do this over and over again and be the best at it because that wouldn't be realistic. Yeah, but... <laughs> She kind of does, because like we said, she goes on to run for class president. It's already established that she's this sort of like conscientious, eco-conscious, like, you know, Jesse Spano type, an activist. Yeah, exactly. We get the return of the picture them naked thing with the, you know, the coda that we mentioned before when all the centerfolds come back for the shoot at the end. And Joey Lawrence is the one who's all nervous uh, because, like we were saying, he's, I don't know, he just like loses consciousness when, when sexy women in bikinis show up. So Tony tells him it helps if you picture them naked. Which would be the opposite of the thing that would help, but okay, and then he passes out again. So yeah, again, the trope, holding steady, right? (laughs) Childhood trauma, some sort of challenge. You confront it in a sort of uh sideways way right like and we always have to get the funny moment of the picturing them naked yeah exactly always that's never the solution that actually works but it's always sort of thrown in the mix as a possibility right moving on to herman's head season two episode 12 feardom of speech yep so i won't ask your experience with herman's head because i know for a fact You have seen each and every episode as we have personally, we have had the Herman experience together as part of our personal TGIF. This was one of my nostalgia picks. Uh, This was a show that I grew up with. It was only on for a handful of years, but... That was key time for me. This was probably, I would guess, 90 to 93, something like that. Yeah. Right when I was, uh, would have been 10, 11, 12, 13, something like that. 
This was contemporaneous with the beginning of The Simpsons on Fox, so it shared a lot of the same cast. It was contemporaneous with Married with Children, so it shared that raucous, sort of pushing the standards sensibility, but it had this gimmick of, if you've ever seen the Pixar movie Inside Out, it's a similar thing, uh, portions of the sitcom are going to take place inside Herman's head. We're going to have people representing his intellect, his anxiety, his lust, and his compassion. And it was, you know, sort of a high concept thing that I really ate up as a kid. And I watched this religiously and it made a huge impression on me. It obviously hasn't made a huge impression on the world because it's not on any of the streaming services. It's hard to track down. You have to go to YouTube to watch it. You hear it brought up as kind of a a punchline once in a while. And there's a lot that doesn't age well, as we'll get into. But I always have a sort of soft spot for Herman's head. Yeah. Thoughts. Um, <laughs> all, I mean, you just represented it accurately. It was one that I remembered, you know, when, when you first brought it up and said, hey, I think I might want to have this as the next nostalgia pick after Charles went away. I was like, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. I remember the concept, right? Like that was that was the thing to me that was so interesting about the show. But it was on Fox, as we've talked about on the podcast, that it was on Fox during that time that I wasn't allowed to watch yeah. Fox. Um, my parents didn't like the Simpsons. They didn't like Bart Simpson. He was a bad influence. So I just didn't, I didn't watch, I didn't get to watch Fox. And so I had not seen a lot of it until we revisited it a few years ago. And yeah, I mean, look, it's, there's a lot of funny in it and there's a lot of grown in it. It doesn't have the thing that Married with Children had. Married with Children was highly rated, right? Like Married with Children kind of soared in certain ways, whereas in this show, ways, but it was polarizing. It was definitely polarizing, but in terms in terms of like being able to stay on the air, it was able. This show was not. It was yeah. like chronically low rated. It just couldn't figure out who Herman was. He's kind of a wet rag the first season. He's William Ragsdale. He is. He's kind of a wet rag the first season. And then he sort of like tries to get a little edgier as time goes on. And the issue is that even though he is a three-dimensional character because we can see inside his head... All of the people around him are very one-dimensional. And so there just isn't anything to kind of grab onto in terms of an ensemble show. I think you and I have talked about how if they had been able to kind of tap in to the people inside the head in the inside of his head and done even more of the interactions there instead of just making them funny cut two bits, yes. then it would have been an amazing show. Yes. I think there are two overarching mistakes i would say that they made with the execution of the show the first one is just like you said the people inside his mind representing his his different aspects of his personality should be involved in the decision making in confronting all of these sitcommy issues and scenarios he has to deal with and all of the angst that plays out in one's mind. And they do occasionally do that. And we'll see an example of that, I think, in this episode. But more often than not, they're the peanut gallery. And they're therefore exactly like you said, something happens in the real world with Herman and his coworkers. And then you cut to them for a funny reaction or a funny costume bit or whatever. And they just don't take advantage of the possibilities that that premise really should afford you. The 
second thing is, for whatever reason, they decided to make this pretty much exclusively a workplace sitcom, right? You could have taken that idea of Herman's head, we're seeing inside the guy's mind, and applied that to any scenario. They decided to have it entirely take place in this research room in this publishing company, which makes it a fairly interesting workplace comedy. And we'll talk about their, you know, how they use the research aspect for their for their humor. But that gives them such a specific focus. Right. And all of the stories have to involve these these co-workers of his. And there's no family stuff. There's no like there's dating stuff. But it's just the that choice of setting and of cast of characters is a little odd. Yeah. And I think the episodes where it's the most interesting is where it starts to flex a little, right? Where we get the, you know, the characters from the office kind of, you know, intruding or impeding into Herman's kind of day-to-day life that's away from the office. But yeah, apparently one of the writers works on 9 to 5. And that's what gave him the idea to take this idea and make it a workplace comedy. Yeah. So their workplace is, like I said, the research department of a publishing company, which means, and I'll say yet again, I've never worked in a research department. This one, I actually feel like might not be as far off base, but the way Herman's head would have you understand it, their job is, uh, at least some of them, to, to answer the phone and take questions about whatever facts people want to know about. Like, they are like the Google search for their company. Right. So they're fact checkers, mostly. Like, all the files you see getting passed around the office, those are stories that are ready to be published, and they're doing the fact checking. And so, and then oftentimes, other people, other writers in the, you know, in the building will call and ask for information. So yeah, it's like calling information. It's like Googling. They are the Google. And it's also interesting because they have like an episode at one point where like computers and the internet like come to the company. And it is very anachronistic. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, their their whole existence is a relic of a bygone time. And Mr. Bracken, the boss, has this sort of encyclopedic knowledge. The idea that this would be a springboard for some maybe bawdy humor about the things that people would ask them about is clever. They have no chill with it. Like the very first scene of the first episode is Louise answering the phone going like, hello, research. Oh, you want to know how long a Venezuelan rhino's penis is? Oh, let's see. You know, and every question is like, well, how, how many orgasms does the average Moroccan woman have? Oh, none if she's sleeping with me. <laughs> like it's it's always, always. this crazy, raunchy, silly thing. And yeah, it's just like, it's, again, it's, it's a clever idea that you could use their role as, as researchers in all kinds of funny ways, but they really kind of blow their load, as it were, like right <laughs> off the bat. Well, I, I mean, look, they're early Fox. That's what that's what yeah. they were known for. That's what they wanted to do. Like they that was cutting edge for them. Right. So, yeah. So the people that that work in the office with Herman, Mr. Bracken's his boss. And then you have two women characters. Right. In you have show, Yardley right? Smith. 
Yardley who, Smith, who's Lisa Simpson. That's right. And Hetty. And Hetty, who is Carol on Friends. Ross's so, ex-wife. Wa- Ross's ex-wife. That's right. Not the first season, though. Didn't she come in later on? She wasn't the OG Carol. Oh. She was the Carol, I think, that replaced that Carol okay. later on. She's a recognizable actress. She shows up in stuff you see here and there in the 90s. But here's the thing. And look, uh, it's eventually revealed Yardley Smith's character, Louise, is a virgin. Uh, Hetty is portrayed like the entirety of her character is this gold-digging, Machiavellian temptress, you know? And so... I don't know. Isn't that just that virgin whore thing? Like, isn't that just your sort of basic feminism 101? Like, what are we doing here, guys? That like the only two female characters are this, you know? Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, that you've said it. There is nothing more to say. They didn't have good ideas. All of their inspiration was in the inside of Herman's head, and then they didn't use it. They focused on these other people in the office that just weren't as interesting, and then they didn't develop them. But her thing at the beginning of this episode is uh, it's all about a sort of convention that's happening, some sort of like summit, right, of the muckety-mucks or the important people of their company. It's all very nebulous and stupid. Yeah, it's the um, all of the you know, C-suite people and other companies as well are coming to hear from, it's a research convention. So they have asked Herman to speak at the research convention as, you know, one of the up and coming researchers at this company. Yeah. And so her thing in the whole opening of the episode is researching the people like all these guys and finding out who are the rich ones, who she should be trying to sleep with, who's single, etc. Right. And that's uh, always her shtick. She's always on the hunt for a wealthy man so she can stop working and live the life lifestyle that she's accustomed to. Yeah, which again, if it's, you know, if you want to be an edgy Fox show and be like all, you know, kind of edgy and tasteless, that's fine. You can have that character, but it's just so damning that there's only one other lady character in the whole show and she is this other comic extreme. But anyway, yeah. uh, that's that's what Hetty's up to. So we get normal characters in the kind of like guest stars, right? We get normal women that Herman tries yeah. to date. And I think... Some Yeah, sometimes. I mean, part of that is that you don't want him to, like, get involved with his wacky co-workers. If they were too normal, too down the middle, then he would have no reason but to get involved with them. And as it stands in this way, our main character does get involved with both of them in turn at some point in time, but it, it quickly, you know, kind of dissipates. But yeah, as for this episode, we're setting up that there's this convention thing happening, and... Again, very sitcom-y and contrived, but Mr. Crawford, the the boss boss, you know, very silly sitcom-y character himself, this is the kind of guy, it's not Leslie Nielsen, but it could be, you know, yeah. this very sort of straight-faced idiot character. Yes, like Mr. James or Mr. Jameson or whatever from News Radio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Stephen Root character. Yes. So he has sort of appointed Herman to speak. For no reason. Like, this is another one of these things. Like, I did have experiences having to, uh, we called it 
and I hate this phrase, lunch and learn, right? Where, uh, you know, somebody from each department would get up and give a presentation while the rest of the company lunched and learned. And, uh, you know, I remember it, it weighed on me when I had to do it. So, of course, this kind of thing happens, giving a presentation, you know, at, at work. But there is something particularly sort of random and, again, just that quickie sitcom writing where they don't bother to flesh out, like, oh, there's some specific project that he's involved in. It's just like, oh, no, Herman, give us a speech on the nature of research. Yeah, we're going to get it done in 22 minutes. So we've got to have a silly little idea. And then the whole rest of the episode was going to be spent, you know, dealing with the fear of giving this speech. Yeah. Another childhood trauma. Yes. He peed his pants in front of the class when he tried to give a presentation when he was a little kid. Yeah. Now, this is a strength of Herman's head, I think. When they do flashbacks, uh, they do it like a play where they stay in the little set because the brain people sort of live. They have their own set. That's just this sort of generic, like shabby chic sort of like area yeah you know? it's like it's like a rec room that yeah. has all of these different random pieces of memorabilia right from it's throughout. almost like a tgi friday's yeah, like exactly like a bennigan's from throughout herman's yeah. life so there's like an ohio state thing and there's little signs on the wall of, of stuff there's a you know a torn up old chair you know just all these little mementos of things from throughout his life right so when they have something like a flashback a dream sequence a fantasy they'll do it like a little play where where they'll have the little kid of him sort of come out and kind of stand a little bit off to the side of them, maybe put the spotlight on him. And so, yeah, we see little boy Herman. And yeah, that's the story. Like you said, I don't think it's any more specific than he had to get up and speak at school one time and he peed in his pants and he's been phobic ever since. He's, yeah, he's always been nervous about um, getting up in front of people ever since then. So he's avoided it. One of the ways that we do get the, um, the four brain people really contributing in this episode. This is one of the very rare episodes of Herman's Head where there is something happening with the brain people that is interesting to watch. So when fear, anxiety hears that this is going to happen, that he's going to have to give this speech, the intellect is like, no, we're doing this. And the lust is like, wait a minute, why do we have to do this? And then the woman who is helping organize the event is very good looking. So intellect tells lust, hey, that woman is interested in us. We will go and flirt with her once we have done this speech, but you have to help me keep anxiety under control. And then Louise is also having a problem. And so sympathy, compassion, whatever she is, sensitivity, that's mm-hmm. that's the role. Her uh, She's sensitivity. So sensitivity is like, I want to help Louise. And intellect is like, look, if you help me keep anxiety under control, then we will go and help Louise. But we have to get our speech ready. We have to keep anxiety under control. And then we will help Louise and we will sleep with the other woman and we will do all the things you guys want to do. Are you with me? And so you've got the three of them kind of banding together against anxiety to sort of keep him in check. While anxiety runs away and hides in the 
brain so they can't find him. And they we get to hear this whole thing about like, you know what happens when he does this? We've got to root him out because he'll pop up at any, at any time and it'll be right when we're trying to give our speech or it'll be right when we're trying to get with the woman and we can't have him be hiding like this. And so they don their cowboy outfits and start riding off into the sunset to try to root out anxiety wherever he is in the brain. And that that's cool. What a great use of them, right? Yeah. No, I agree. That is that is exactly why we have Herman's head and they do a good job of using them to show like, yeah, this is the way your your emotions interact with each other and sort of overwhelm each other at different times. And we should say, in case you haven't seen this, it's four characters, like we said, in his mind. His lust is kind of like a John Belushi type, like this sort of ribald, fat, wild guy who's He's always He's played horny. by the, San- the guy who plays Santa from Home Alone. Yeah. Intellect is kind of like a Frasier or Niles guy, this sort of snooty, uh, you know, mid-Atlantic accent type with glasses. And then the sensitivity is a woman, which, you know, you've got the sort of 90s, uh, you know, oh, have a feminine side. You right. Know? So, so Did you notice when um, sensitivity gets on the horse, she rides side saddle? I did not. The other two, like, sure, mime putting their leg over the horse and like riding off, and she goes and just hitches. She just goes ooh and hitches up the one leg and rides side saddle. I thought that was cute. Yeah, and then anxiety is like a little nebbishy guy. Yep. But uh, anyway, yeah, the western thing is fun. You know, they've got wanted posters for the anxiety character. They have to track him down, and yeah, they have that sort of vaudevillian aspect to it. And I think that is part of why looking back on it, why I like Hermit's Head maybe, because it sort of reclaims some of that theatrical stuff that we talk about, you know, really liking about the old-timey sitcoms, and you sort of lose that as they get more realistic. And so this gimmick of the characters inside his mind, yeah, you get these silly costumes and stuff like that. So, yeah, back in the real world, Herman has to give his speech Crawford, the boss, introduces him, saying he's the son of poor dirt farmers from the foothills of Georgia, right? Right. And none of that is true. Uh, It's just more of his sort of, you know, like the guy, you know, he's he's like got shrapnel in his head kind of characters. Well, so, I mean, the setup is Herman tells Mr. Bracken... Um, who is supposed to introduce him, just don't oversell me. I don't want people's right. expectations to be too high. And then Bracken doesn't even get up to the podium before Mr. Crawford gets up there and just says this whole thing. And then um, Herman's like, oh, my gosh, he's making me sound like Clarence Thomas. Another yeah. of our timely references. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of the timely references, just a moment earlier, someone says, Mr. Crawford speaks very highly of you. And Herman says, well... Mr. Crawford also speaks highly of the Ernest movies. So, you know, <laughs> again, those uh, those who live in glass houses, guys, like right. the Herman's Head writing team should not be making dispersions against the Ernest movies. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he takes the stage and he has a very Blossom-esque panic attack, right? Similar yeah. sort of like he gets a sentence or two in. He doesn't quite have the same like, and I <laughs> but but he goes, I can't do this and marches off. Yeah, he runs out and uh, everyone's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then the next scene, you know, cut to commercial, next scene, it's the next day. We're back in the office setting and everyone is like, oh, Herman, yeah, it was pretty 
bad, but that's okay. And Mr. Bracken's like, you always have a job here. You can work in research for the next 30 years if you want. Don't you worry. And of course, Herman's big aspiration in life is to get out of research and be a writer. So he's like, oh, great, thanks. And is all downhearted. And Louise has conquered her fear. And she gets a date with the guy that she's been worried about whether or not he likes her. And then when when Herman melts down, she says, you know what? I, I'm not going to go on the date because you I saw what happened to you and I just don't want to risk it. So I'm not going to go on the date. And then Jay comes in, his friend Jay, played by Hank Azaria, comes in and is like, hey, that was pretty rough. And he's like, yeah, I know. Well, I heard you're going to have to give the speech again. Yes, which is another, like, that's what makes it too sitcom-y to me. Like this idea of like, oh, we need to gather up all the CEOs again to give this speech. Like, why? Again, well, it's the second day of the convention. So yeah, we didn't hit your spot the first time. So don't you worry, you're going to get a chance again tomorrow. But this time, we're going to take you to a hypnotist right. so that you'll well, be ready. Yeah, let's not gloss over uh, Mr. Crawford's sort of pep talk or I don't know what you would call it, but just just so you know where the sexual politics of Herman's head are. Uh, <laughs> As if we didn't already. He says something about, uh, I've never seen such a disgusting display of female histrionics. That's right. right? He, the specific phrase is female histrionics to describe Herman, you know, storming out of the room. Yes. Oh, so, histrionics, a word steeped in misogyny. Yeah. Stemming from the root of uh, hist, as in hysterectomy, based on all of our female parts. Also the word hysteria, steeped in misogyny. Yeah, uh, and you know, Mr. Crawford is supposed to be sexist within the world of the show, but still. Uh, he gets his own inspirational story, just like our Golden Girls did, and you know, everybody, this is another running subtrope here, is somebody has to sort of lend a hand and say, well, I used to be afraid of something, and and with Crawford, it's, uh, I used to be afraid of cottage cheese. Right. Right. It's just a random... And now I eat it every day, even though I'm lactose intolerant. Yeah. So not, not a lot going on there. Like you said, the main solution is going to be Jay, the best friend, is going to suggest hypnosis. That's and right. so we go to the lady hypnotist. And the lady hypnotist has, of course, so Jay is a dog, right? This is established in all the episodes. He is, he is, Herman is a good guy because his, you can see what a bad guy is in Jay. He's, like that's the setup, right? He, yeah. If, if I think of like the cliche of the horny best friends, like for me, this is the first that comes to mind. The, that comes to mind. So Jay is always looking to score with the ladies. He is a writer at the same time company. And so he has done a story with this woman hypnotist, and he wants a reason to go back. So Herman is his ticket in. Well, so we get there and we find out that the woman hypnotist has seen right through all of his shenanigans and has hypnotized him so that every time her watch beeps, he sings, I'm a little teapot. Yeah, so we get the sort of running joke that Jay is extremely susceptible to hypnosis, even though he doesn't think he is. So yeah, throughout the episode, whenever anyone's watch goes off, he stands up and says my and sings my little teapot. He, you know, when she starts hypnotizing Herman and says you're starting to get sleepy, Jay immediately conks out. The part that I was disappointed with was that they didn't do much with the hypnosis effect on the brain 
people. Yes. You know, what would it look like inside your head if you're hypnotized? Exactly. This is one of those moments where they have the opportunity and they don't. We cut to them standing there looking dazed. Yeah. The three of them, because anxiety is still hiding, standing there looking dazed and they repeat sort of in monotone confidence, shield, whatever, the like mantra that she gives him, the three-word mantra. And then it cuts back to Herman kind of waking up because she snaps her fingers. And then it cuts back to them saying the mantra again and Herman saying, yep, okay, I'm ready to go. And that's it. It was just like two little quick flashes and they have captured anxiety. Yeah, and I honestly don't know what I would have in mind for that. But I don't know, you know, think it over and and come up with something. Yeah, I mean, to me, you already established the hunting party, right? The cowboy thing of going out to hunt anxiety. You could have them roaming through like the vast like cornfields of the mind and find him and have their rallying cry be that mantra that's going, you know. But also just what hypnosis is. Like, it's it's trying to put things in your subconscious. Right. right. They did do a funny little thing where it was like, the subconscious, we're not even allowed in there. Yeah, they, they tackled that in some other episode. But yeah, just sort of breaking down, like, how does hypnosis work? And how could you maybe realize that within this world? What does it mean when you're trying to affect somebody's behavior by, you know, tapping directly into their subconscious? versus their conscious thoughts like i don't know they just they could have done more with yeah that. I don't they, know and, and as it was it was very quick one and done so we could get back to the scene where he has to now give the speech again so the thought that's been implanted in his mind is that the podium is his shield and it gives him confidence yeah so he gets up to the podium and he's all ready to go And then he gets a little bit into his speech, a few sentences again, and the podium breaks into three pieces and falls apart. Yeah. And so, you know, there's some push and pull because Mr. Bracken... This is my shield! Yeah. Mr. Bracken's like, well, go ahead and give us the broken podium and continue your speech. And Herman, you know, refuses to do it. And then we go back in his mind. And this is where we do get, you know, what ultimately makes it a really solid episode, I think. It's lust taking charge you know it's the rare moment where lust is like he he understands what's at stake and he decides like he just sort of rallies the troop how does it play out well again it goes back to he's the man and being a man means none of this stuff worries you and so he's like get out of here you wimps this is what i'm gonna do and he makes a joke and then the audience laughs and then he goes to make another joke and it starts to get a little untoward and intellect is like okay i'm ready i'll take over and pushes him aside yeah and so you know maybe it's not amazing but the idea of that representing the way like yeah maybe your horniness or your sex drive might be the motivation to you know suck it up and and conquer your fears and deliver a good speech and that yeah maybe you sort of rely on adrenaline a little bit and then your intellect takes over or something I maybe think- it was the the trope of seeing people naked that was the reason that lust could take over we just didn't get to see the imagined naked people yeah i don't know this might be the one where they don't say the naked thing i'm not sure but yeah so it ends with unmitigated victory right like he gives his speech 
and everything's okay. And uh, and the woman still wants to go out on a date with him. And Louise has solved her own problem because she did go out on the date with the guy, but the guy was so boring that she was like, oh, I got to go find somebody else and goes off to meet a new man. Yeah. So, you know, again, pretty straight line. We got most of the usual subtropes. And uh, yeah, you know, suck it up, face your fear, track down your anxiety, you know, resort to hypnosis if necessary, and uh, you'll be okay. And you'll be all right. All right, moving on to Big Bang Theory. Season three, episode 18, The Pants Alternative. Yep, we talked about the Big Bang Theory back in our Slumber Party episode. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised with that experience. We talked about how, you know, Big Bang Theory came out when we were grown-ups already. It's a Chuck Lorre show. It's, you know, it's not entirely my speed, and I didn't, you know, I, I just wasn't watching a ton of TV at that time when it came out. And when I watch it now, it's like, look, it's never going to be my favorite show, but I always really enjoy Jim Parsons and Simon Helberg. Uh, Galecki, I find a little annoying in this role, to be honest, but Kaylee Cuoco is great. Maya Bialik, when she joins the show, is great. So uh, the performances and like some of the writing is actually really good. And it's enough to always make it fun. You know, it was not on the level to me as it's single camera contemporaries, right? Because this would have been around the same time right. as The Office and 30 Rock and stuff. And I don't think it's operating at that level, but sometimes it is and sometimes it's fun. Well, and I don't think it's trying to operate at that level and do those different things. What it is doing, though, is being a really good sitcom, like in the traditional vein of a sitcom. I unlike you, did watch this kind of, at, at least the first few seasons, I was I watched it. This episode in particular is the one that uh, Jim Parsons won the Emmy for. So huh. this is, it's the, you know, the singing and him getting, you know, his pants off at the end and his hair all tussled. He gets to kind of like take his character to a different level. So of course, this would be one that would be put in for consideration because he gets to play two sides of himself in this. So yeah, this this episode in particular is very funny. I always love an episode where it devolves into Gilbert and Sullivan, so can't complain about that. And uh, yeah, it's we've got Sheldon winning an award. Um, the award is, I think... The Chancellor's Award. Okay, for Best Scientist uh, uh, at know, the school or something? Yeah, something, you know, within their field or whatever. Right. Uh, well, it's all the scientists that are up for it because he, like, at the awards banquet is making fun of the geologists and yeah. all the others. So it, it, he anyway, he believes believes that he should have won this award for the last however many years it's been given that he's been at the university and he is pleasantly surprised when he's like haha I finally won they finally came to their senses and then realizes that in order to receive the award he has to give a speech yeah. and so he the gang rallies together to say here's how we're going to help you overcome your childhood trauma yeah, they find this out while they're sitting around watching a 3D DVD, right? I just wanted to point out before we, you know, go deep into the story, there is just like uh, all these other episodes, there is a lot of time capsule stuff going on here. In the very first scene, they're talking all about Avatar, which is ironically, it's very time capsule for 2010, but the new Avatar is still coming out because James Cameron takes a decade between 
between each movie, so it's actually <laughs> still uh, still relevant. They're talking about the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboot, and they're watching, yeah, a, a 3D DVD with the crappy glasses. And yeah, all of this is just very 2009, 2010. Yeah, for uh, sure. So they're sitting around watching this DVD when he gets the call saying, in order to accept this award, you have to give a live speech. And when he, you know, sort of hangs up the phone and explains to them that it's a dilemma because he's afraid to to speak in front of crowds, Howard has a great delivery where he says, uh, you give speeches all the time. What you can't do is shut up. And... <laughs> And Sheldon explains, like, well, it's all about the size of the crowd. So they ask him, how big does the crowd have to be for you to get nervous? And he says, 36 adults or 70 children. Yeah, enough that could trample me. Yeah. And that size is 36 adults or yeah, 70 children. And that's going to become a running joke throughout the episode where when he's annoying, somebody somebody will say, like, where's 70 children when you need them? Right. <laughs> um, Howard also has another really good delivery later in the episode when they stage the intervention and they say, here's how we're all going to help you. Each of them says, you know, Penny is like, I'm going to take you shopping and we're going to get you a nice suit so you feel really confident. And Leonard is like, I'm going to give you a therapy session because, you know, yeah. I've been in therapy well, for forever and they, that's going to help you conquer your childhood fear. Kuthra Pali is like, I'm going to help you with some like yoga meditations. And Sheldon goes, OK, Howard, well, what are you going to give me? And Howard is like... I do not care about your problems. <laughs> yeah, no, I like his character in that way in general because he's the variation on the nerd that doesn't give a shit. Like, he actually has some backbone. But yeah, the thing you're talking about, them all sort of donating one asset, is uh, the way they explain it to him is that they're going to be like the X-Men and he's going to be Professor Xavier. Right. And he says, well, the X-Men are so named because of Xavier, so since I'm Sheldon Cooper, you need to be my seaman. And that becomes a running <laughs> And joke. then everyone's like, that's a bad name. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get each of the vignettes of the characters doing the thing that they said they would do. You know, we get the montage of Sheldon changing into the different suits. The first suit that he tries on is something that is very hip and cool today. But yeah. in that time, it's 13 funny. years ago, his, was ugly and lame. Yeah, his tastes are a little loud. He likes things. He objects to the nice clothes that you see all over this, like, J. Crew type place because there's no color. He says everything's right. one color. It's like, why and, would I pay so much and it's only one color? Right. So he comes out in a suit that's like, yeah, a little hipstery. It's got a pattern, like a kind of a loud pattern that, yeah, wouldn't really be that out of place, you know, in some no, sort of a fancy event. No, it would be very event. cool today. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Penny poo-poos that. He tries a few things. He tries one that looks like the, the suits and tails that they wear in Dumb and Dumber. Yes, and then, but all white. And then right. he has on the, like, cow like rhinestone cowboy yes uh outfit where he says i used to have a suit like this when i was in school <laughs> yeah but what penny ultimately makes him settle on is uh exactly what you would see when jim parsons shows up at the emmys it's just like nice looking jim parsons in a tasteful black suit yeah it's black on black on and then gray tie so this was definitely in the era of like monochrome color yeah. like everything all one color that's the look regis philbin i remember just him doing that every day when he was on regis and kelly yeah 
It was a little annoying that Raj's contribution is so tied to his ethnicity, I felt like. Like, they couldn't give him anything else, maybe. But he has this, like, Indian meditation thing that he does. So that's that's his role there. Yeah, he says that meditation using these um, techniques are what got him over his fears. And Sheldon is like, you still can't talk to women. And he's like, yeah, but at least I don't run out of the room and, you know, pee my pants every time there I'm near them. Yeah. And so his whole meditation thing involves sort of going into your happy place or whatever. So Sheldon goes into Shellopolis, which is the place he invented in SimCity. Right. And it's just all about how he loves SimCity, and he gets a 15% discount at Shellmart, which is his favorite store in Sheldon Square in Shellopolis. And it's a very silly scene that's just Sheldon being Sheldon. Sheldon being Sheldon. He cannot do any of the meditation that Kuthpali is asking of him because he's too busy talking, just like Howard had said. Like, he won't shut up. He won't just sit there and follow the guided meditation. He has to be in control. He has to ask questions. And Kuthapali eventually just gets up and walks out because Sheldon is just talking and talking and talking. Yeah, and a similar thing happens with Leonard's psychiatry session, right? That's Leonard's contribution. And he sits him down and tries to, you know, goes through various psychological things to help him. It's funny that Sheldon has like pre-ready answers for the Rorschach test. He's like, if you want my Rorschach answers, here's what they are. Bat um, two, bat three, bat four, my dad killing my mother with a hypodermic needle. Yeah. Uh, but then it he, he turns the tables on Leonard and starts, you know, the joke is like Leonard saying, well, this reminds me of, of something that I had to deal with. And it ends up being something about him being he was accused of plagiarism by his mom because uh, because of his lima bean science project. And so the whole thing is like. You know, their postures sort of switching and Sheldon taking on the more, tell me more, how did that make you feel type thing. And um, Leonard is just having his own little meltdown about how he has this like really hard relationship with his mother. And so what Sheldon takes away from the therapy session is, hey, I think I can give this speech because if someone like you, who's this messed up, can get out of bed every morning, at least the least I can do is give a speech and be amazing because I'm a brilliant mind. And so he walks out of the room and then Leonard is sobbing in a chair. Yeah. And so we go to this award ceremony and this is where this show zigs where all of the other ones zag. Uh, Sheldon gets drunk. And so right. Well, that sort so of- everybody has been kind of annoyed that like none of the things that they tried to do to be supportive to their friend worked. And he's still sitting there like basically saying none of you semen came through for me and whatever and penny just having none of it is like you know what why don't you try the oldest trick in the book here and hands him a glass of wine and he's like i don't drink and she's like well you do now go for it and he chugs this glass of wine and he goes this alcohol was broken i don't feel any different she goes try this one and hands him another one and then we cut away up to the stage where leonard is introducing him and it is taken on a turn of its own and it's all about leonard and his mom and so in the meanwhile sheldon has gotten a bottle of wine and is now drinking out of the bottle of wine yeah he's coming up to the stage like kanye style you know like (laughs) wine bottle 
bottle in hand and it's just full drunken buffoonery you know it's him stumbling around making crude jokes he's making fun of all the other science departments that he doesn't respect and uh he goes uh and maybe you can help me understand this one he goes here's some jokes why did the chicken cross the mobius strip to get to the same side so what's a Mobius strip again? A Mobius strip is the thing where it is one piece of connected tape, but there is a twist in it. Mm-hmm. And so it's all one side because of the way it twists. So if you were to like run your fingers along, it would look like your fingers switched sides, but they really didn't. All right. So that's part of that Big Bang Theory sort of show Bible, I feel like, is that even if the show is like actually a little dumb overall, they're always going to give you a few things that are like, this is smart person stuff so you can learn. So we get the sort of like dot, dot, dot on the drunken speech, right? We see it's going downhill and we sort of fade out and we go to the next morning where Sheldon is very hungover. You know, we get to see him hungover, presumably for the first time in his life, right? So he comes in and he goes like, uh, might you two be able to answer some questions about the events of the previous evening? Because <laughs> he can't remember. And so Penny and Leonard are like, oh, sure, um, but you should just go watch it. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, it's on YouTube. And he's like, don't worry about searching. It's already teed up. And they're just drinking their coffee and giggling because they have already seen it, obviously. Yeah. And so he watches the tape and it's more. Is there anything special in the tape or it's just more craziness? It's just well, it's devolved. Right. So he comes out from the bedroom in his suit jacket, tie and shirt, but no pants. That's how he comes out from the bedroom, right? So we see in the video how he got to that state, which is he takes his pants off on the stage right. while he is explaining the it's, physics theory of how you can potentially be in two places at once. Right. He's like, my pants could not possibly go over my head because my body is in the way, but through fourth dimensional spatial reasoning or something like that. And yeah, and so he takes off his pants. And he does. And that is, that's the end of the episode. We yeah. all get to laugh at Sheldon having a full-on meltdown. So it's sort of like the subtrope I see said in Blossom, where it's like, well, I didn't win the thing because I was disqualified, but I did conquer my fear, even if it was in sort of a sideways way. But this one, it's really a sideways way, you know, because just not to get preachy about it, but conquering your fear with alcohol is not conquering your fear. And so he hasn't reached any meaningful solution because A, you know, unless he plans on getting drunk next time, he's going to have to deal with this again. And B, whatever he was worried about happened. He made a fool of himself at the at the event. And I guess we can look at this a little bit as, like we often say, with the newer tropes, you have to subvert them. We can't have in 2010, especially for a show ostensibly for adults, the same old conquer your fears, learn your lesson stuff. We need to, you know, I think especially at this time, it's okay to undermine the messaging and to be a little irreverent and not learn the lesson because we already learned it from 20 other sitcoms. Sure. And do what any kind of normal person does, which is just sort of suck it up, have a few drinks, push through, and half the time get through it and half the time embarrass yourself. Yeah. So what do we think going over these? MVPs, any uh, overall thoughts? 
Golden Girls is always fun. My favorite parts of Golden Girls are always the kitchen table conversations. When all four of them are there, Sophia's usually off doing something. There's always one that's standing because they can't sit on all four sides of the table, right? So Sophia's like moving around the kitchen, lobbing zingers into the conversation. Rose, Blanche, and uh, Dorothy are at their respective seats, and Rose tells one of her silly stories, and they all are like, do we have to listen to this? Oh, no. You know, everybody's kind of like insulting each other, but in a loving kind of way. Um, I, I love those moments. Favorite Golden Girls moments are those those kitchen table moments, and when they have a cheesecake, even better. So I will always have a soft spot in my heart because of that. But in terms of like the funniest, like minute by minute, every single scene, every act really good all the way through, it's got to be the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I think this was a pretty solid lineup. I don't think there were any bad ones. None of these were boring or unfunny. The Golden Girls was good for all the reasons you said. I feel like Blossom, this wasn't the best example of that show because I feel like Blossom at its best are the ones where, you know, for better or worse, they're kind of taking on the hot button issues and it's Blossom has to decide whether to lose her virginity or this or that or drugs or drinking and stuff. And this one was a little more down the middle, whereas Herman's Head, I think this was a very good example of that show. Right. And so for me, as a Herman's Head head, uh, (laughs) the fact that, you know, it's taken us this long to get to it. And we sort of lucked into one that was actually uh, a really above average example of it. For me, that was the sort of joy of this lineup. Yeah, for the nostalgia reasons, for sure. But also because in terms of dealing with this fear of public speaking thing, that episode did as good a job as any of these of playing that out in his mind. And so it, you know, it it was just a good match of trope to show. Yeah, I think you're exactly right because it was an internal conflict. So often in that show, they are taking on external conflicts. And for Blossom, this being an internal conflict that wasn't having to do with a coming of age story, that's why that one suffered. I think like you said, it's not as um it's not as a a shining example of when Blossom is really good. In terms of the the A story being bang on all the way through, just laugh, laugh, laugh. Every beat hits and there's something funny in every scene. Big bang. Yeah, yeah, these were good. All right, so much for conquering our fear of public speaking. What are we publicly speaking about next week? Next week, we're breaking up. Cheers, Season 3, Episodes 21 and 22, I'll Be Seeing You, Parts 1 and 2. Friends, Season 3, Episodes 15 and 16, the one where Ross and Rachel take a break, and the one with the morning after. The Office, Season 3, Episode 8, The Merger, and New Girl, Season 3, Episode 20, Mars Landing. Yep, that's next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to the sitcom study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. 
And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. 